anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? Is he not able? If he is not able, will he send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace? In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for, for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears, ears to hear, let him hear. So I pray this morning that we have ears to hear and so that we will hear, not just audibly, but that we will hear uh, what uh, the Holy Spirit would have us hear through uh, these words of Jesus this morning. Um, and so this morning I want to talk about cost uh, and specifically counting the cost and, um, and, and it's important to know the cost of things. Recently, um, my brother and his wife, Steph, so my brother's Ben and his wife, Steph, um, gave us a call and they wanted to uh, invite us to, uh, on a ski trip um, for a few days uh, to Jindabyne and so one of the first questions we, we asked, of course, we would love to go with my brother and, and his wife and their kids um, on a ski trip and spend some time with them. But of course, one of the first questions we ask is, how much will it cost? Uh, and not just the accommodation, we looked up lift passes and like went, oh my goodness, it costs a lot. Um, and, and, um, and, and so one of the questions we, we dig into when we go on a holiday is, is um, not just how much are the plane tickets, how much is the accommodation, but how much are all the other little bits and pieces going to cost us so we can know, can we afford it or not? It's important to add up and to count the cost. And one of the times we really encounter the importance of knowing the cost is when you go to a shop and there's no price tags on anything. Usually that is a bit of a signal that it costs a lot um, if they're not prepared to write it down. But, but we know how important it is to know how much something costs when we don't know how much it costs. And you have to do that thing of like, oh, I like it. how much is this? And then when you find out it's more than you can afford, you have to do that like awkward, like, hmm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this, but it's not quite what I want and put it back on the shelf because you don't want people to think, oh, they don't have the money for it. Um, you just want them to think that, yeah, you've gone with something else. And so that's one of the times that it highlights. If you don't know what the cost is, it's hard to know what you're getting yourself into. And so the question this morning I want to explore is, what does it cost to follow Jesus? What does it cost to follow Jesus? What is the price tag on discipleship? And so the reading uh, Kitch read for us this morning from Luke chapter 14, it begins in verse 25 with saying that large crowds were travelling with Jesus. 
And so this is the context. Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem and he's been ministering in miracles and he's been preaching and people have been amazed and he's also fed thousands of people with, with a small packed lunch. And, and so he's got this large crowd of people following him. And this is the context in which Jesus says these words. And it's important for us to pause and consider that. Jesus had large crowds following him. We live in an age when the goal of so many is the generation of a large crowd of followers. And so following is made easy and it's boiled down to the simplest kind of cheapest buy-in so that we can register more and more followers. Following is made as easy as a click. In fact, years ago, Facebook changed their, their following thing to a like because people... Um, we're a bit like, oh, I don't know if I follow that, but I kind of like it. And so they found that people got more followers if it was liking something instead of following it because it's not making as much of a commitment. So we live in an age where, where the goal of so many is to generate a crowd regardless of how uh, devoted that crowd is to the cause. And so we make it as cheap and as easy to follow. And, and out of interest's sake, if you're wondering, that the, the person with the most followers, according to what I read on Twitter, is Katy Perry. And she has 100,212,785 followers on Twitter. On Instagram, Selena Gomez, who I don't even know who that is, um, is has 122 million followers. On Facebook, Christian... Cristiano Ronaldo, who's a soccer player, has 103 million likes. And so we live in an age where the bigger that number for so many people, the better. That it's about getting a crowd. And so in that context, Jesus does the opposite of making this gateway into liking, following is easy. He didn't seek to cultivate the size of the crowd. He didn't seek to pursue likes over devotion. He turned to the crowd and made clear the cost of following him. Jesus didn't want people to have to go to the cash register to ask what the cost was. He told them up front what the cost of following him is. And so this morning, this, this passage is to us. And, and really the question, this what is the cost of discipleship, really the question that Jesus is asking the crowd is, are you just part of the crowd or are you my disciple? Are you just following, hanging out, wanting to see the miracles, you kind of like the community, or are you a disciple of Jesus? That's the question that Jesus is asking his crowd. And it's the question that comes up for us when we consider this question, what does it cost to follow Jesus? And so as we move through this passage, the first thing we can draw out is that following Jesus means that Jesus must always come first. Jesus must always come first. In verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me who does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, his brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. These are jarring words. Whoever does not hate cannot be my disciple. And it's confusing words because God is love and Jesus calls us to love one another, to love our neighbors ourselves, to love even our enemies and those who persecute us. So is Jesus now really saying that we should hate our father and mother? 
Is Jesus now really saying that we should hate our spouse and our children? Does Jesus really mean that we should hate our brothers and sisters? Does Jesus really mean that we should hate ourselves? In short, yes. Yes, he does. But not in the way that that we might think. The original Greek word here is misai, or the root word is misaio, which means to hate, to detest, but on a comparative basis. It means to love someone or something less than someone or something else. It is to renounce one choice in favor of another. And so in this light, this word meseo, we're called to hate in a meseo kind of way, even our own family, even ourselves for the sake of following Jesus. But this word doesn't mean that we have an attitude towards something that is filled with feelings of hatred. It means that we disavow that person or something, that we, we set it aside for the sake of following another. And so Jesus is not suggesting that we should have feelings of hatred towards our family. Jesus is not suggesting that we should have feelings of hatred towards ourselves. But he is declaring that if we are to be his disciples, then he must always come first. Every single time, on every occasion, with every choice, with every decision, with every moment of life to be a disciple of Jesus, Jesus must come first his will must come first we must love him first we must put him before all things we must protect our relationship with him above all things jesus must come before even our own mother and father jesus must come before even our own husbands and wives and children jesus must come before our own brothers and sisters jesus must come before even our very own self The original Greek word here for self is psychin. That's where we get the word psyche, but, but the, the, the translation we could use is soul. See, Jesus isn't just saying we, we need to set aside our, our personal possessions or, or our own feelings, needs and desires. He's saying we need to put aside, we need to put aside and, and preference Him even above the very essence of who we are. Jesus must come first before even our very own soul. And so for some people, uh, they face this as a very tangible decision between choosing to follow Jesus or choosing to have relationship with family. For some, they must choose one or the other. For others, with supporting Christian families, this choice seems less significant or even irrelevant, but I would suggest that all of us consistently face the temptation to put family, ourselves, our jobs, whatever it is before Jesus. And in fact, sometimes not that the emotional decision is, is easy when we have to choose between family and Jesus, but at least the choice is clear. It's a, it's a, it's a definite choice. But, but for others, when our family are, are loving and supportive, we, we, we at times fall into the trap of putting family, loved ones things before Jesus 
That wouldn't happen if they were completely opposed to Jesus and we had to make that choice. Before Jesus spoke this to the crowd, in Luke we get this parable. I'm not going to read the whole parable, but it's a story about a a ruler who invited lots of people, the chosen people, to a banquet and none of them wanted to come. And and the thing that the, the parable centers on is their excuses of why they couldn't come. And so in Luke 14, 18, after being invited, it says, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. There's a wide range of excuses there. It's not meant to be exhaustive. What the question that those excuses ask us is, what is our excuse? What is our excuse for not always putting Jesus first? At the heart of what Jesus taught this crowd is that if we want to be his disciples, we must protect our relationship with him at all costs. It's really actually a question of boundaries. Um, And I've given this book to a bunch of people. I recommend it to a bunch of people. It's an excellent book. And boundaries uh, are essential if we want uh, to be uh, healthy, to not be eroded, to not be burned out, to not be directionless, to not be depleted. Boundaries are key. And... This book is someone's, if they want, who feels directionless, depleted and wants to admit it, you can come talk to me quietly afterwards. But this book is for some, to be given away to anyone who, who wants to kind of learn a bit about boundaries in their life. Because boundaries are key. Boundaries are critical. But what Jesus is teaching he, the crowd here and asking that question, are you part of the crowd or are you one of my disciples? is that our boundaries need to be in the right place. Because our boundaries are misplaced if our own wants, needs and desires are protected by our boundaries, but unwavering to devotion to Jesus is not. Our boundaries are misplaced if our family time and relationships with our family are protected by our boundaries, but... Our relationship with the Lord and our time with the Lord is not. Our boundaries are misplaced if our personal and family finances are protected by our boundaries, but our giving to the Lord is not. Our boundaries are misplaced even if our intimacy with our spouse is protected by our boundaries, which of course it should be, but our intimacy with Jesus is not protected by them. Our boundaries are misplaced if our job description and our our work role is protected by our boundaries, but our dedication to the great commission that Jesus Christ gave us is not protected by boundaries. Boundaries are really a question of what do you most protect in life? What is the absolute center of your priority that will not be uprooted and impinged upon by anything? And so what Jesus is saying is that he must be at the very center of that. 
He must be the thing, our relationship with Him, our dedication to Him must be the thing that is walled behind the thickest of our boundaries. Even over and above our family. If we want to be a disciple of Jesus. Recently I was, I was reading um, in Haggai, as you do, uh, I'm sure we all regularly read in Haggai, um, it is a, a good book. The good thing about the minor prophets like Haggai is they're short, so you get the whole book um, in one sitting and you're finished in 20 minutes. But I was reading in Haggai and, and in, in chapter 1, verses 4 and 9, and I won't read the bits in between for the sake of time, but, but this is in, to give you the context, this is in uh, the time where Israel had been um, uh, exiled to Babylon, um, but... Uh, Babylon had been conquered by Persia and the Persian king Cyrus had sent them back to rebuild the temple. Um, but then other opposition had come up and so, so the, the exiles had returned to Israel and were re-establishing Jerusalem. The foundation of the temple was laid but not much more than that had been done. And so uh, through the prophet Haggai, God speaks to his people and he says um, in, in Haggai verse one, chapter 1 verse 4, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while, the house, while this house, speaking of the house of the Lord, remains in ruin? In verse 9 it says, You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains in ruins, while each of you is busy with his own house. And so I was challenged by these words because as much as I believe in boundaries, and thanks Rob McGregor for making me some, um, I think it was actually for his wife, but um, who's our master decorator. But as much as I believe in boundaries, I think our attitude towards boundaries is that the last thing that we allow to be transgressed upon is our family, our house, our home, our personal finances. Now, don't hear me as saying these things are not important. We should have strong boundaries around our relationships with our family, with our children, with our spouses, with our brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. We should have good boundaries around our home so it's a restful place for us. It's a, it's a place that we use for what God calls us to be used for, whether that be the party house in the street or the quiet place of rest just for your family. It's important to have good boundaries. But so often our attitude towards boundaries is that even Jesus cannot impinge upon my family time. That even Jesus cannot impinge upon my home or my finances. And so, what we end up with is like the people in Israel where our houses are in order, our houses are in order, but our relationship with God is in disorder. Our house is in order, and we, and we need to be careful not to say the church is God, but they're, they're not, but it's God's church, where our house is in order and invested into, but God's house is not. And so, the challenge of Haggai, the challenge of Jesus' words, is that the last thing protected by our boundaries, the thing that is in the keep, if you're familiar with medieval uh, um, architecture where there'd be an outside wall and another wall, and the thing that would most want to be protected if they were a good king would be the women and children inside the keep, the, the most solid boundary. 
the thing that should be inside our keep, the thing that should be behind the central fence for us is Jesus. Not your family. Not yourself, but Jesus. In the next chapter, in Luke 15, 13, Jesus says this. I've got the wrong reference there, sorry. Luke 16, 13. Jesus says this, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, Jesus says here. But he could have said anything there. You cannot serve God and anything else with the same level of devotion. See, the thing is, I've realized and been challenged this week as I prepared this for myself, is that the best thing I can do for my wife and children is to put Jesus before them. It's challenging to say, it's challenging to do, but the best thing I can do for my wife and children is to put Jesus before them. Not the church, that's a little bit of a different thing, and certainly not the institution of the church. But the best thing I can do for the church is to put Jesus before it. But the best thing I can do for my wife and children is to put Jesus before them. And in fact, I'd be a much better husband and father if I was more consistent at doing that. I would certainly be a much better husband and father than I currently am if I was more consistent at putting Jesus before myself. but I do a disservice to my wife when I put her first before Jesus. I do a disservice to her. And I certainly do a disservice to my wife when I try and put myself before Jesus in her life. Now, I'm talking of, of wives and husbands because that is, that is the, what is usually behind this last fence. That's what is usually behind this last fence. And I would say in a healthy relationship, it needs to be behind the second last fence. But, but this is true of every relationship in your life. The best thing you can do for that person is to put Jesus before them. Jesus must always come first. And just as we spoke about last week, that repentance in light of tragedy and terrorism, leads to an outward response that's appropriate and Jesus-shaped. Putting Jesus first in our life leads us to respond to our wives, to our mothers, to our fathers, to our husbands, to our children in God-shaped ways. It leads them to understand that they are so important to us, but the most important thing, person, anything in this world is Jesus Christ. That is the best thing we can do for anyone we're in relationship with. We cannot serve two masters. Jesus warns us, if we try, if we try and say, well, my wife, my husband, or whoever it is, my children uh, are uh, my equal priorities with Jesus, Jesus warns, you'll end up hating one. I don't want to end up hating my wife, and I don't want to end up hating Jesus. 
I don't want to end up not being devoted to my wife or despising my wife and I don't want to end up not being devoted to her and I don't want to end up despising Jesus. And the answer is, I don't serve two masters. I serve one, Jesus. And all else in my life flows from that place. If we place anything, absolutely anything, either in our own mother, father, even our own spouse or children before the Lord, Jesus says we're not worthy to be called his disciples. These are extremely challenging words. But following Jesus is not a part-time pastime. Following Jesus means that he must always come first. Because following Jesus, in fact, costs us everything. What does it cost to follow Jesus? The, the answer to that is that following Jesus costs us everything. In verse 27, Jesus goes on to say, verse 27 of chapter 14, Jesus goes on to say, And anyone who does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And so Jesus didn't merely have a symbolic meaning of his own death in mind here because Jesus had not yet been crucified. Jesus had not yet been to the cross and it's pretty clear that his followers did not yet understand that that would take place. And so Jesus had in mind for them what anyone at that time would have understood a cross to mean before Jesus was crucified on one as a symbol of suffering and shame, and being despised by the world, and rejecting all earthly status. Jesus is saying, essentially, that to take up the cross is to cast aside all things for the sake of following Him. In verse 28 to 32, uh, He talks about two stories, about a person who, who wants to build a tower, and He encourages them. He, uh, he says that we should be encouraged to count the cost that you don't set out to build a tower unless you're confident that you can pay the cost before you run out of money. Trent's a painter and I haven't talked to him about this, but, but Trent, one of, the, one of the works of any trader would know is, is giving quotes, letting people know how much it will cost to get the job done. Because Trent doesn't want to go into a house and start painting and, and, and get halfway through and then say, oh, I'm out of money. And you end up with a half-painted house. When I lived in Sydney, I'd often drive past and it's a full building now. Um, but for many years, the, the World Centre um, near Broadway on, on the road on down George Street into the city was this monstrosity that was half-finished because those who set out to build it ran out of money and so it was this concrete monstrosity with lift towers pointing out all over the place and the building just wasn't finished. And so Jesus says, before you set out to achieve something, count the cost. He tells another story about, about a, a king going to war and, and counting the cost of whether it's actually possible to be successful. Jesus, as I said earlier, doesn't want us to be in the position of having to put our discipleship back on the shelf because we weren't prepared for how expensive it would be. And because those who pause to consider the cost will be more prepared to follow through when the time comes. That's what quoting is all about. 
If Trent didn't go and do a quote before he painted a house and, and then told them how much it was at the end, I'm sure he'd get lots of people saying, whoa! Not because Trent's an expensive painter, but he's a quality painter, um, but because it's expensive to get a house painted. Paint costs money. Labor costs money. And, and so if Trent didn't forewarn people of the cost, he would have lots of people not prepared to pay. Jesus forewarns us of the cost to prepare us to pay. We're not talking about our salvation here. We don't have to earn our salvation for Jesus. We're talking about being a disciple, a follower of Jesus. I won't go down that rabbit wiring because we'll be here for a week, the difference between those two things. See, when I chose to marriage, marriage, when I chose to marriage Christy, um, that's what the young people do now. They take uh, nouns or, and make them verbs. Um, so when I chose to marriage Christy, I meant to say that. Uh, when I chose to marry Christy, I didn't know what all the days ahead would bring. But I did know that that commitment was, for better or worse, rich or poor, sick or un, unsick, we have very poetic vows. <laughs> um, though we don't know what every day will bring in following Jesus, though we don't know what every day will cost us to follow Jesus, we need to have this moment just as we would before marriage, hopefully you do before marriage, go, am I committed to this at all costs? Because if we don't, then we won't be prepared to pay when the time comes. If we don't pause to consider before we get married that I am committed to this no matter what it costs me when a hard day comes, we're like, whoa, I never expected this. When we don't receive the quote from the tradesperson and commit to paying that, when the bill comes, we're like, whoa, I wasn't anticipating this. Jesus wants us to count the cost so that we'll be ready to count the cost. And if we haven't picked up yet what that cost is, in verse 33, he makes it clear. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything that you have cannot be my disciple. The cost of following Jesus is everything. And this isn't just about possessions. In fact, it's less about possessions. It's more about all that we are and have and hope to be. It costs everything in the sense that Jesus is placed before all things in our life. It costs everything in the sense that we must be prepared to surrender all for Him. It costs everything in the sense that our entire lives are oriented around Jesus and His will. It costs everything in the sense that for many, it will literally cost everything including their lives. It costs, and we need to be prepared that it will cost. King David would not give a sacrifice under the Lord that cost him nothing. He had the opportunity to, he needed to build an altar and make a sacrifice before the Lord, and he had to buy the land to do that on, and, and the man who owned that land said, take it. You're the king, have the land. And David said, I will not offer a sacrifice to the Lord that costs me nothing. Because it's not sacrifice if it's free. 
We read of Paul in Philippians saying, I consider all things garbage, or if we to translate that literally, I'd probably lose my job for the sake of knowing Jesus. Paul sacrificed all things for the sake of knowing Jesus. And so the question is, do we shy away from the cost of following Jesus? Do we give only until it actually starts to cost, until we actually start to feel it? Do we want the blessing without the cost? If we only offer what's left over to the Lord after everything else, then it's not really a cost at all. Following Jesus is not a part-time pastime. Following Jesus costs us everything we have and are and hope to be. And following Jesus calls for us to be radically different. Verse 34 and 35 goes on to talk about salt. And Jesus says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit for neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. They who have ears to hear, let them hear. And so Jesus says salt is good. So feel free to continue to use it to season your food because Jesus has affirmed that it is good. Um, and it has a number of uses. Salt is used to add flavor, to enhance flavor, to preserve things. And in fact, apparently at Jesus' times, it was also used as a fire enhancer. They would throw salt on to get the fire going. Um, apparently that works. Um, but if salt loses its essence, if it loses the thing that makes it salty, then it is no good. If, if salt is not distinct as salt... It is worthless. If salt loses its saltiness, you're just grinding dust onto your boiled egg in the morning. If salt loses its saltiness, it preserves nothing. And so Jesus says that his followers are called to be salty. That, that means that we're called to be distinctly and radically different to everyone else. In John 17, 15 to 18, Jesus says, My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one, for they are not of this world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And so this is where we get that phrase that we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus says of you, you are not of this world. You are something other than what is of this world, but you are sent to it. We're not, we're not called to be detached from the world. We're, we're sent to it. We're called to be in relationship, to be culturally relevant, to connect, contextualize the message of Jesus in a way that the world understands, but we're not called to be of the world or like the world. We're called to be distinctly different. We're not called to show the world that we're just ordinary people just like them. And so this is a phrase that I have used 
this is a phrase that I hear often come up, that, that if we could just show people who, who think the church is weird, that we're just ordinary people just like them, then they would automatically become followers of Jesus. I don't know what the end of that statement actually leads to, but, but so often we have this idea, if we could just show the world that we're ordinary people just like them, then, then they'd be more accepting of us. That may be true, but we're not called to be ordinary people just like them. We're called to be salty. We're called to be distinguishable, to be detectable, to be radically different. And so this doesn't mean separating from the world, but it does mean at times that we refuse to participate in certain things. But it also means at times that we choose to participate in things that others won't. It does mean making choices, but, but what I want us to grab this morning is that it should also mean that we're the most loving people that those who are in the world have ever encountered. It should mean that we're the most joyful people that others have ever encountered. It should mean that we're the most peaceful, perseverant, understanding, faithful, trustworthy, patient, kind people that those in the world have ever encountered. If we rewind to a few weeks ago when I was talking about the the Holy Spirit's manifestation out through us, people should say that you're on something. That's Cheryl, she's out of this world, she's on something. See, to be radically different doesn't mean that we have to be jerks or to, to set up enclaves of Christianity that no one else can penetrate. But it means that we're radically distinguishable that the way we live and act and breathe and move in this world is so flavoured by Jesus that we taste like the salt of Jesus. It means to welcome the world in, like Carl was talking about with Babes in Arms and and play group and what we do with our bush dance and, and, and what our heart is for so many things like Phil's sewing bee. And, and we want to welcome the world in, but we want them to see that we're salty, that we are different to anybody they've ever known. We should stand out. We should be abnormal. People should want to know what we're on. In a, in a similar um, teaching in, in Matthew, Jesus uh, adds these words, you are the salt of the earth. Before he goes to say, if salt loses its saltiness, it's worthless. You, the followers of Jesus, not just the crowd, the, the disciples of Jesus are the salt of the earth. If the world loses its salt, it becomes a very flavorless place to live in. We are called to be the ones who give flavor to the world. We are called to be the ones that enhance the flavor that was already there. The world is a very bland place if those who are called to be the salt of the world lose their saltiness and and sometimes I fear that I've lost my saltiness that I've traded the goal of being radically different for Jesus with the goal of I hope they like me and think I'm normal and sometimes I fear that as as the church we slip into that that we 
slip into the from the goal of we are so dedicated to Jesus that we want to leave people to salvation into his name that we slip into I hope they like us and don't think we're weird we want them to like us to love us because what they see in us is Jesus not because we've watered ourselves down to the point that we've lost all saltiness. It was great last night to see no one had to preach or to give a gospel presentation, but it was a night filled with saltiness. I mean, the followers of Jesus being joyful and loving and welcoming in strangers and having fun. celebrating see being salty doesn't mean that we all go out and become you know street evangelists unless that's what you're called to do but it just means that Jesus shapes everything about us so what does it cost to follow Jesus what is the price tag on discipleship Well, it means that Jesus always comes first. It means that, in fact, following Jesus costs everything and we need to be prepared to pay that cost. And it means that we're called to be radically different. Phil. And I just want to read, though, one final verse as if you're thinking, well, that all seems a bit too pricey. Um, I think I'll, I'll take that discipleship and I'll, I'll look at it. Mm, looks interesting. Seems, seems good for some. But I think I'll put it back on the shelf. Uh, then I just want to leave you with one... Uh, Final verse to sow into your cost-benefit analysis. With my limited understanding of uh, economics, we need to not just consider the cost that something costs, but also the opportunity cost. What would it cost if I didn't uh, do that? Um, And so in Luke chapter 9, verse 25... Jesus says this, what good is it for a person to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very own self? See, following Jesus costs everything, but the benefits of following Jesus outweigh whatever cost we could pay. And the cost of following Jesus might at first seem like nothing, but will be a cost that is immeasurable. At the end of the day, none of us have the capacity to pay the cost. None of us in our own strength are worthy to be called disciples of Jesus. And so we lean on God's grace. We lean on the Holy Spirit within us to now enable us and to empower us to walk out the choice of choosing to follow Jesus.
of choosing to say, Jesus, I will put you before all things in my life. Of choosing to say, Jesus, no matter what it costs me, I will follow you. Of choosing to say, as much as we might just want to be normal and fit in and not be noticed, of choosing to say, Jesus, I'll be radically different. We lean on the Spirit's power to enable us. We lean on Jesus' sacrifice to make us worthy. So I'm going to pray. Uh, And then we're going to finish with a worship song. Um, um, But as we pray and sing... um, what I'm inviting you to do is to count the cost, to consider, is there someone, something else before Jesus in your life? Are you prepared to pay all things? Are you prepared to be different in Jesus' name? And whether you've made the choice to follow never or a thousand times, as we pray and as we worship, my encouragement to you is to Again today to draw that line in the sand and fresh to say, Jesus, I choose to follow you. Let me pray. Jesus, I do not just want to be part of the crowd that hung around you. Though I know I do not deserve to be called your disciple, I do not have what it takes to pay the cost. I pray that you, by your Spirit, will enable me to. I thank you, Jesus, that though the cost of following you is everything that I have, everything that I am and everything I hope to be, the price you paid for me is so much more than I could ever offer you. So Jesus, I choose to follow you. I choose to put you first. I choose to say that I will pay whatever it costs me to follow you. I choose to be different in the name of Jesus and not just part of the crowd. I choose to place you on the throne in my life and you and you alone. And I choose to worship you. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.